Hello, I'm Will Leach, your host of the People Still Read Books podcast. It's episode 12 of this podcast. This is the last one of 2020. So this podcast is getting through this year faster than you are, and faster than I am, and faster than any of us are. This has been a fun podcast to do. Uh, this is the whole idea of this podcast, as I believe I reminded everybody several times each time I do this podcast, is that I have a book coming out called How Lucky. comes out in May of next year, around the time, who knows how vaccines will be going by then. I assume I won't have one, but hopefully my parents will, and hopefully um, you will. But I'll, I'll wait. Not because I'm nervous about it, I just, you know, who cares about me? Anyway, the point is, uh, the whole point of this podcast is to help get promote that book and talk to a bunch of great authors about their books. And so uh, we'll be doing more of those in 2021, leading up to May. And heck, I'll probably still do it after that because I just like to talk into my computer. Our final guest of the year is a big one and a good one. He is a longtime friend of mine. He is also my editor at New York Magazine. It's David Wallace Wells. David Wallace Wells is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Uninhabitable Earth, all about climate change and the end of the world and everything falling apart. My old joke about David is uh, who I've known for a very long time uh, and is, uh, I would consider a friend of mine. I, I think I joke at the beginning of the interview that uh, uh, his is the most depressing book I've ever been thanked in the acknowledgments of. But uh, I once wrote a piece, he, he was my editor for my sports columns at New York Magazine and my stuff for the magazine as well, in the print magazine. And I wrote him a piece one time, and he wrote his response, this is really good, but really depressing. And to hear that from the guy that wrote The Uninhabitable Earth is quite a thing. Uh, but the book is terrific. It is just as vital as it has ever been. Um, it is out in paperback now, uh, but you should really just buy it because it will tell you everything. Yeah, it, uh, the idea is that it will scare, hopefully scare people into action. I, and he, as he talks about this on this podcast, he believes it has uh, in many ways, in a way that's very exciting uh, and hopeful, though there's a lot of bad times to come. He's also written a lot about COVID for New York Magazine and has used that kind of same analytical mind uh, to, uh, I think, shed some light on the epidemic as well. And again, he's also my friend. So I like David. He's also, even though he's a Michigan State basketball fan. Go Illini. Remind you, as always, to follow us on Twitter at StillReadBooks. Email me with any thoughts you have. People still read books at gmail.com. And have a great rest of 2020. I will be back. Have a happy holidays. I'll be back after the new year. Uh, probably never shutting up about the book. <laughs> but for now, let's talk to David Wallace Wells about his book. The book is The Uninhabitable Earth. Be safe, everyone. Have a great rest of your 2020. Up until uh, 2019, I think it was April of 2019, the most depressing and despairing book I had ever been in the acknowledgments of was Dave Cullen's Columbine, which I thought would be a record. I just didn't think it would. I, there would be a book that it would be more despairing that I'd be in the acknowledgments of. But then my friend and editor at New York Magazine, David Wallswells, wrote the incredible book, The Uninhabitable Earth. And there I was. I was like, great. At the end, I needed something happy. After all of that, David, thank you for coming on and talking with me on the People Still Read Books podcast. Thanks so much. Wait, so what did you do? What, what happiness did you get? Where'd you go? 
Uh, well, I'm just in acknowledgement. So I was just like, hey, good. Oh, all right, yes, all right, yes, yes, right, yes. right, right. Yes. And again, you know, this is a weird thing with people that have worked in sports forever. We're always looking for gravitas. Like, I'm like, oh, I was thinking, I mean, I've got my name in two books that aren't sports. Like, I literally had to write a whole novel that had nothing to do with sports. This is, I, it's like, I feel like it's like the equivalent of when, like, uh, uh, like early on in the career when, like, Bill Murray did the Razor's Edge. Like, right, just, right. like, really trying to be, it's the equivalent of a comedian trying to go serious. I think it's always kind of the sports thing. Well, um, I have a million questions to you. Talk about. We've never really talked, we talk all the time, uh, stories, but I feel like we've never really talked about the book. So I figured I would just take the opportunity to ask you on record where we're recording and letting people listen to it to, to ask you about. I, of course, remember the original story. Uh, that ran in New York Magazine was it? What, did that story inspire the all the people coming around for the book, or were, were those things hand in hand? Did you imagine that situation going kind of the way that it did? Well, when I started working on that story, I was not at all a climate person. Like I was coming, I you know I'm a journalist with some interest in like the near future, and I guess I had been following a little bit of the climate news, but I was not somebody who lived in that world at all, and I didn't expect that I would like live in that world permanently. For sure. Um, and but I, I was writing it with a bit of an agenda, which is that when I looked around climate journalism, climate storytelling in general, I saw nobody writing about it with the kind of immediacy and fear and epic scope that I felt when I read the scientific papers that I read. And I wanted to do a different kind of a thing and sort of strike a different kind of a chord. And I expected that when I did that, it would produce some amount of sort of response because I figured there'd be some people like me who felt that their own anxieties about the future of the world were sort of not reflected in, in most writing about it. Um, but I also expected that there would be some pushback and blowback because, you know, as I wrote about in the piece and then later in the book, there was this, there's this sort of, or was for this for a long time, this culture of scientific reticence that made scientists and the people who worked on climate reluctant to really talk about um, the scarier end of what was possible. And that's what happened. I published the story. It was a huge phenomenon because I guess there were a lot of people like me who did, felt ill-served by earlier kinds of uh, climate journalism. And then there was like a wave of debate where I was sort of pulled into conversations with extremely impressive and pedigreed and, you know, people who I had enormous admiration for and who did much, much more for this cause than I could ever <laughs> dream of, um, who thought that what I had done was like illegitimate or irresponsible, which is to say that I was talking um, not just openly, but kind of theatrically about um, this, like the, the scary end of the of the bell curve of possibilities, and thinking, trying to think really clearly about we t we say the words worst case scenario, but like what would that actually mean? And you know, when I started those conversations, it wasn't like I felt that I needed to write a book, but by the time I had sort of finished with them over the course of a few weeks, I felt like even firmer in my perspective that what I was doing was right and important and that the story of climate change hadn't really been properly told because everybody who was telling that story was doing it in this really cautious way. And, um, you know, in addition to the fact that while I was researching and writing the story itself, there was all this stuff that didn't make it in. And I just started thinking this was a much bigger story than even a magazine feature could, could sort of accommodate. Um, so like I would say over the course of the month or so after it came out, I felt, you know, this is like, there needs to be a next step. And then as soon as I started working on the book, I thought, well, maybe this is going to be the rest of my life, um, which, you know, actually it's going to be the rest of everybody's <laughs> life because climate change is here. Um, but it's, it's been a weird few years in that sense. Cause I, you know, 
I, I write a little bit in the book and I talk about a lot. Like I'm not, you know, never thought of myself as an environmentalist. I'm a lifelong New Yorker. Like I really did feel for almost all of my life that, you know, the concrete streets and the steel skyscrapers were going to protect me from anything that nature could throw my way. And part of what so terrified me about the state of scientific research on climate when I really dug into it a few years ago was how foolish and fragile, you know, all of those things, how foolish it was that I thought that and how fragile all the things that I sort of took for granted as permanent features of of our modern life really were. And I think we sort of started to learn that lesson again with the pandemic when like, within three months, just so much changed. So many things that we thought were unchangeable changed in, you know, like the space of a basketball season. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, we don't yet know really what will come of that in the long run. Like, will governments continue to spend this kind of way to support the livelihoods of their citizens? Like, are we capable of totally turning on a dime and recalibrating our personal lives and our political lives and our professional lives in order, you know, out of a sense of fear? Um, or are we just going to exhaust ourselves with all of this and, and all the spending that we've done to prop ourselves up through it and come up on the other side even less prepared to deal with like this even bigger challenge, you know, the, the climate crisis that's like kind of unfolding even as we're focused on the pandemic. Yeah, I remember that backlash. Uh, not ba- backlash is not quite the right word. I did. That, that, I think that's that's an overstatement. But I, I actually remember seeing. Cause I also did not think of you as a climate person. I thought, like, I thought of you, frankly, as a Michigan State basketball fan. <laughs> and uh, and so and so to me, I was well, one of the things that's happened over the last few years is like my Twitter. Now during Michigan State games, I'm like, how come I can't see any of the <laughs> Michigan State tweets? It's all these climate people crowding <laughs> on my feed. <laughs> I know that's yeah. I have those those lists. I think people use the lists anymore. I feel like uh, yeah, I probably. Uh, uh, but no, so I feel like, uh, but I remember when those, those results, the, the, there was that response. It actually confirmed to me even more that you were that the, that your approach was correct because so many of the these scientists that I think were again backlash is too strong, but it's maybe pushing back a little bit. Were of the idea that like, hey, you know that prob- that might not happen, that could not happen. I mean, we should be very cautious in our language. And I was like, wow, I'm bored actually listening to you respond to yeah. this, and, and I don't mean to say I don't mean as an insult. To them, by the way, I just mean that, like, the, I've, uh, the, to me, that was what I was so powerful about your approach. Well, and listen, I am the same way. Uh, I have always thought as the climate as a problem and an issue that needs to be dealt with. But like everybody else, eventually. Like eventually, there's so many other things going on that we have to deal with. We'll get to that, and I think that to me that was the power of the story in the book itself was how urgent it actually made that. And I, I would argue, and I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on this. Since the book has come out, uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to give it entirely to you, but certainly I feel like for both the story and that book, it does feel there is a more practical, not entirely, uh, maybe it's only happening on one side of the aisle, but it certainly seems that like the urgency of that, of of the idea that like there was a presidential candidate, he didn't do well, uh, though you had a great interview with him in New York Magazine, uh, Jay Inslee, who basically was running on Jesus Christ, everyone, we have to do something about about the environment. And, and it, it felt like it was a larger part of the conversation than it had been before. And I would argue, I just, I literally just came back from a Warnock rally. The, 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 the notion that like these Senate seats could literally be, or like the election that we just had, uh, could have been the last, it's already, we're already running out of time. Have you seen that change since the book come, book come out? Or are you still, are you too far in the middle of it to be able to tell? 
No, I think the world is totally, totally different. I mean, I, I, um, I think of myself really as riding that wave of change rather than driving it. But, you know, it's the last, so I finished the book in September, the like final pages of the manuscript, September of 2018. And, you know, that's not that long ago. We had not heard of Greta Thunberg at that point. Like she had already started striking in Stockholm, but, you know, had made no international news. She was this, you know, lonely, friendless, um, 15 year old, um, socially awkward and uncomfortable who was just sitting by herself outside of Swedish parliament at that point. Um, we had not heard of, um, we had not elected Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to Congress. Um, we had not heard of the green new deal or if, if we had heard of it, maybe it was because it was Jill, the name of Jill Stein's climate policy. Um, you know, we, we hadn't seen extinction rebellion in the UK rise up. Um, and, the UN hadn't released this report, which it released in October of 2018, which I think caused a lot of the political momentum that followed, which was just looking at the difference between 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming, which we're probably going to get in the next couple of decades, um, almost no matter what we do, and two degrees of warming, which has often been talked about as like, we need to avoid two degrees of warming. But practically speaking, I think it's essentially inevitable we get there. But anyway, this report looked at the difference between those two levels of warming. And what they found was so alarming and outrageous that it produced this wave of um, really freaked out political activism. And that combined with the fact that for the first time, the wealthy nations of the world in the Northern Hemisphere, namely in in Europe and the US, were seeing natural disasters like in their backyards that were inarguably the result of climate change. And, you know, the equatorial part of the world had been seeing this more, but, you know, the, the sort of power structures were a lot less, um, were a lot less like attuned to it. So at the same time that you have this like political awakening, you also have this like barrage of, you know, the wildfires in California and then in in Australia and then back in California again, these unprecedented heat waves across Europe, you know, the crazy flooding in the American Midwest, the sequence of hurricanes through the Caribbean one after the other where, you know, just a couple months ago now there was maybe it was even less than that. There was a category four hurricane that hit Central America right on the coast two weeks after a category five hurricane had hit. And these are, you know, those are the kinds of storms that we used to expect to hit once every generation. And we're now seeing them all the time. So we're, we're sort of like seeing climate change outside our window now for the first time. And for most of the period of time that you and I have known about this issue for, which is to say most of our lives, but um, we always thought about it in the future tense. So we're starting to see it in the present tense and that really makes a difference. And then, you know, as a result of that, we're actually seeing climate, um, you know, we're seeing policy at the, like pledges at the national and international level, well beyond what anybody thought was really all that possible all that long ago. You know, like there is, um, but hang on, are you hearing my kid screaming in the background? Yeah, but that's okay. She sounds great. <laughs> it's weird. Cause I'm in the bedroom with, I guess my microphone is just really she's good. Not, she's not, she's not, she's not too much. I'll be honest. Like this is, this is what we want. We want some ambiance on this. Gonna, <laughs> it's, it's otherwise just, it's otherwise just me yammering on. So please, yeah, right, please, right. please. I, uh, we, 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 this podcast definitely needs more cuteness. So please continue the cuteness. <laughs> so like, anyway, there, there's, you know, China just made a huge commitment to net zero, Japan, South Korea, all across the EU. These are countries that are like, really making more ambitious pledges than they made under the Paris Accords. And what's interesting about that is that they're not doing it in the context of a geopolitical negotiation. It's like they're they're not doing it because they feel the obligation, the pressure from their peer countries to be better global citizens. They're doing it 
because they actually see it in their self-interest to decarbonize, which very much wasn't the case a few years ago. And that's the last thing that's really changed that's really consequential, I think, is that economists used to say that taking action on climate was really expensive. And now they say we'll be much better off if we move faster. So for all of these reasons, we're seeing like way, way, way more progress than we thought was than I thought was possible. Um, and the world looks like a very different place now than it did even when I finished the book, which again wasn't that long ago. So that, you know, the last major UN report, the major report, the, the one I mentioned, the 1.5 degrees report is like kind of an interim small scale one. But the last major one said that we were on a path to um, get to between four and five degrees Celsius of warming this century. And that would mean, just so your listeners know, that would mean mm -hmm. like 30% smaller global GDP than we would have without climate change. It would mean twice as much war or more. It would mean agricultural yields would be half as bountiful as they are today. It would mean parts of the planet could be hit by six climate-driven natural disasters at once, $600 trillion in climate damages, which is more than double all the wealth that exists in the world today. We're talking about a totally different world. And the UN said as recently as a few years ago that we were very much on track for that, that that was the path that we were on. And now in part because of all the political changes we're seeing and what that means in terms of planning and investment, but also in part because renewables have gotten so much cheaper over this time, we're really seeing like future projections at least look very different. And we're almost certain, I think, to like get into the two to three degree range rather than the say five degree range. And that makes a total world of difference. On the other hand, mm -hmm. you know, two degrees was long described as the cat as like catastrophic level of warming. Island nations of the world call it genocide. You know, African representatives at climate conferences have cried about the fate of the of the continent, which they say um, would be lost um, at that amount of warming. And I don't think there's any chance that we avoid it. So we're in this weird scenario now where we've been making a lot of progress and we've made a lot more progress possible, but we're just too late to avoid a really dramatic redesign of our planet and the way that we live on it. And probably we're going to find ways to do that, at least in the wealthy parts of the world that minimize suffering. But the challenges that we face in figuring out what it means to live in, say, two or three degrees are just, you know, it's a challenge that's like bigger than any before in human history. So um, that's sitting there right in front of us. Right. right. That's, uh, the, that's yeah. the better news. Yeah, that's the good news. <laughs> and, and, and frankly, you know, and I'm curious, you talk about like, not only is it being too late, but I actually find that a more optimistic take on, I'm not, again, not, not the end of Africa's continent, but a more optimistic take on the fact that something was able to be done. Because I have to say, I've watched the last four years of the Trump administration, and it feels like like we pulled out of Paris, and 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 I clearly had an uh, and not not just an indifference, but an active hostility uh, to to this idea. And it's to me this this transitions to. Uh, one of the, some other great work I think you've done, particularly during the pandemic, in that I think you've done great writing about COVID and uh, for New York Magazine about just the the response to it and the and the actual science of it and and to me, you know, I think for a long time the skepticism about getting being able to get anything done about climate was well, you know what, it's so far in the future that no one can get too invested in it because yeah, sure, it's going to happen eventually, but it's so far away we won't we can't do the right thing now because we won't see the results quickly enough. I have to say one thing that I've kind of learned during the pandemic is this actually doesn't appear to be about time at all for a lot of people. If it's not immediately in front of them now, uh, they're not willing to actually take that, take those sort of precautions. And my fear is 
that's actually an American thing. <laughs> that's actually an Amer- And I'm curious as someone who I, one of my favorite things uh, after the book came out, by the way, is I'd be working with something, try to get a hold of you on something and it'd be like, oh, he's in like Helsinki right now or something. <laughs> or just like, you're, you've obviously traveled around and done a bunch of stuff on the book before the pandemic. I'm curious about America's role in this specifically. And then I want to get into to the stuff you've written about COVID because it does feel that our... Uh, that the way that we've reacted to COVID feels like in miniature the way we've been acting about uh, uh, about climate change for so long. And what's worrisome to me is if we can't look like three months ahead, how are we going to be able to look 50 years ahead? Yeah, um, I mean, so to take the, the take the, the America's role in climate first, like, yeah, I think actually um, we have a tendency as Americans to overstate our role here. Um, Like looking back historically, um, um, the U.S. is responsible for more emissions than any other country. And that means both that we're more responsible for where we are now and that we have a kind of moral responsibility to sort of help move things faster, better, you know, in the right direction going forward. But, you know, we're only responsible for about 15% of global emissions, the U.S. Um, China's almost twice as big. And, a lot of other countries are, are smaller than us. We're still the world's second biggest. But it's not the case that the U.S., that American climate policy is the determinative driver of the future trajectory of the planet. Um, well, we, that's a relief. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are a couple ways of thinking about it. Like, one is like, you know, up until quite recently, like, no country in the world was uh, as captive to climate denial as the U.S., as the Republican Party in the U.S. was. And yet nobody in the world was really decarbonizing any faster than the U.S. was. Um, So we have a tendency to like attribute to especially the villainy of the Republican Party in the fossil fuel business, things that I think are more, they're a little harder to pull apart um, and solve than than we'd like imagine if we just think, okay, we need to like decapitate these companies and then everything will be fine. Um, And, you know, Going forward, yeah, it was said when Trump pulled out of Paris by a lot of climate people. First of all, we hope that this can hold together. And second of all, the world cannot address climate change without American leadership. Here we are like four years later. And over that period of time, just about every single major country in the world, major economy, major climate emitter, major carbon emitter, has dramatically accelerated and grown their ambitions on decarbonization in the absence of American leadership. And I think that tells you that there's something else going on aside. You know, we we have this sort of like Cold War idea where we're like, okay, the U.S. and China have to get in a room and just bully everybody else to go along. And there's probably some value in that approach if we could manage to take it. But in the absence of that approach, you still see like South Korea saying, okay, we need to decarbonize everything because we're going to be better off without it. And the same in Norway and Denmark and the U.K. The U.K. is going to ban in the internal combustion engine. They're going to ban gas powered cars as soon as 2030. They're going to do that in California by 2035. California is a car state. Yeah. Um, and all of these things are happening independent of American national climate policy. Now, I still want to, you know, I want the U.S. to lead. I think we need to. I think we need to do better. But I think it's like not as simple that, you know, the, the fate of the world doesn't hang on our shoulders as much as we might think. And honestly, if we're if we're like saying the fate of the world hangs on anyone's shoulders, it's probably Xi Jinping in, in China. Um, and 
they've been moving really quickly. I mean, he wants to, I think he took an opportunity during the Trump years to commit to much more ambitious climate targets than anybody thought was possible. And some people think they're not, you know, China can't really meet those targets, but even so, but he's also taken the opportunity to try to extend that sort of like, you know, that leadership lead on the U S even in a Biden administration. And he made, gave a big speech a few weeks ago where he called the U S essentially a climate villain. And that dynamic is super interesting. Like what, how, how, how this all plays out on the geopolitical stage. But one lesson of it is that the world is moving sort of independent of American politics as ugly and and unfortunate as um, we might find like the sort of disinterest of the Republican party on, on COVID, you know, it's so like there, there are all these ways in which, the pandemic is unfolding in parallel, in unfolding in opposite ways, offers case studies, offers, you know, cautionary tale. Like, but it's obvious that what we're dealing with is a, like a really grand threat that has forced us to respond. And one way of looking at that is to say, well, we really did change everything about our lives in a period of just a few weeks from the time that we first learned about this disease. And we did that not just, you know, in San Francisco and New York and London, but all across the Northern Hemisphere, such that by the end of March or early April, I think there were, you know, there were more than a billion school kids out of school. And, you know, that's in the long run, probably bad in ways that we didn't anticipate um, or, or didn't understand, you know, we were locking in at the time. But it is also just a reminder of like, we really changed everything very quickly. And especially when people talk about climate for a long time, they'd say, oh, these systems are so large. The politics is so intractable. Society, people are so selfish. And, um, and for a period of time, COVID sort of proved us wrong on all that and made it seem actually like all these things that we thought were unchangeable were changeable quite rapidly. Now, we've also ran out of run out of patience for that kind of approach. <laughs> I think because many of the governments, especially across the West, um, you know, Western Europe and the US, didn't make good on the sacrifices that their citizens made, um, didn't build out the testing systems that we needed, didn't build out the contact tracing systems that we needed, didn't institute large scale quarantine programs or whatever. All of that stuff is like, we just, nobody did that. And to your point about America and the pandemic, you know, I, I find myself like I, there's no way you'll ever find me def- defending, truly defending Donald Trump. He had an abysmal record on this, literally chose to do nothing. But when you look at our peer countries in Europe, some of them did better than us. But when you, you know, you have to see the, the clump of countries that make up the West as a clump. And as a clump, we were embarrassed by New Zealand and Australia, not to mention Japan and South Korea and Taiwan. Like, yeah, Germany and Canada did better than the US, but like they did nowhere near as good as some of those other countries that were not in Europe. And Germany is like the shining example. And there are a lot of countries across Europe that did a lot worse than the US. Belgium has like almost twice as many deaths per million citizens as the US has. Um, the UK has more than we do. And then France and, and Italy and Spain are all sort of right around where we are. So like, you know, one big question I've had about this disease in general is looking at how totally incompetent American leadership was, and then to see us performing roughly as poorly <laughs> as most of the countries we would consider our peers. And you're like, 
what is the role of public policy as opposed to, <laughs> you know, just human behavior and the natural dynamics of the disease? And when it comes to COVID, I think we still don't know a lot about that stuff. You know, there's some theories that populations across the Pacific have much more exposure to other coronaviruses because there are much larger bat populations throughout Asia. And if you have exposure to other coronaviruses, you might have some amount of what's called cross-reactive immunity, where, you're, where you, you handle the disease much better than people who, who, ha, um, who haven't had that exposure. There's some, also some reasons to doubt that. Um, and of course, a lot of these countries put in you know, much more aggressive, much more rapid responses to the disease than many of the Western countries did. They did so preemptively. We did it only when the disease came to where we were, and that wasn't just true country to country. In the case of the U.S., it was true like city to city. People around the country looked at New York and said, oh, we don't have to worry. Those fucking New Yorkers, they live on top of each other. They're gross. They live in the subway. You know, we don't have to take precautions. And only really did anything when the disease came to their doorstep. But, you know, when you look around Asia, I mean, I talked to um, – there's this this guy who's a former Portuguese diplomat, and he's he's now a kind of a – public intellectual of a kind, Bruno Messias, um, who wrote a couple books about China and sort of, among other things, like an expert on, on um, Asian geopolitics. And, and he said to me, and this was right at the beginning of the pandemic, he said, you know, China had this horrible event where they like had this outbreak of this disease and then they just locked down an entire city. And everybody in the West was like, Wow, China's crazy, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> they were like, they were like, wow, they can't keep a, tr- they, we can't, they can't keep um, a, a handle on their on their diseases. Those wet markets, people eating all those bats, whatever they do. And then they also thought, oh, but they, you know, the crazy authoritarianism, like they really locked yeah. down that city. How crazy! That would never happen here. And in Asia, all the other countries in Asia who knew China much better than Westerners did, looked at what happened in Wuhan, and they were like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> like we have to prepare immediately. Right. If they're doing this, right, 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 right. <laughs> like this is serious. And, um, you know, so we had a, a much more, a much more, um, uh, robust response and prep job in Asia. I mean, you know, nevertheless, like probably the, the, the best American or the best European corollary in Asia is Japan. They're culturally and in terms of demographics, the closest to a European country. And they had an incredibly um, good pandemic, despite doing much less than their um, their neighbors in terms of prep. They they basically never did a shelter in place lockdown. They did you know impose social distancing guidelines and and they had a culture of mask wearing and they did a lot of contact tracing. Um, but they were they had a much less intrusive response than you know say um, South Korea did. And yet they came out on the other end probably even better off than South Korea did. So a lot of these dynamics I think we we genuinely just like don't understand. And I'm a little wary of attributing so much causal, um, you know, so, so much causality to choices that are like, I was just thinking to, I don't know if you, I was just thinking last night, I was like, wait, why is California having a fall surge? <laughs> yeah, I've had, I've had the same thought. I asked my friend Tim, who I do, a, I do a weekly, he lives in LA. I do a, talk to him every Sunday night. I'm like, what is going on there? And Tim never goes anywhere. So he's like, well, they think they're doing outdoor dining. I'm like, I don't think that's it, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's outdoor dining. And, and again, I'm in Georgia where basically it's, I mean, it's not the Wild West. But, you know, it's close. And we're starting to get our now little little surge thing. Our kids just went back to remote yesterday, by the way. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, so uh, they're just doing it through January 19th. And I and there's a logic to it. The fear is whether they're going to come back. <laughs> you have to make sure they actually come back when they say they're going to come back. But the point is, is that, like, to see, you know, I went to... I went to Cincinnati to cover a baseball game uh, at the end of July. And I was like, wow, people are just walking down the street wearing masks. 
Pit, wow, because I don't see Yeah, yeah. And, and and like and, and Cincinnati's right on the border of Kentucky. Yeah. And so and and I had seen nothing like that in Georgia. And I will say that I do think there's there's I think there is something to it to the actual specific uh, you're talking about the science of it, but I think there is something obviously specific to a region. Never minding the fact that like, but also to the leadership. Like the fact is is. Yes, we can all make an argument what people in Georgia are like and what people in Ohio are like, what people and so on. I, we can debate and maybe we'll never know, but the idea of what the pandemic is like, particularly in the early stages in, say, Georgia, if Stacey Abrams wins rather than Brian Kemp winning, people do the Hillary Trump thing. But I actually feel like with, some, with the way that this all was, like, what, is it different if it's Gillum rather than DeSantis? Like, and... But what, what I find fascinating what you're ta- what you're saying here is that like it's also possible that this is bigger than all of this and the idea that like who the like what the actual thing in place was the idea that like the control group of Trump being like eh, herd immunity yeah let's go with that one the 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 i the idea of that the total absence the fact that people were doing worse means that we may be it may be a fallacy to think that we have nearly as much control over any of this than we actually do. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we have to believe that we are we have some control and some impact. But I also think, you know, when I look at, like, you know, um, yeah, I, you know, Angela Merkel is, like, the um, the poster child of, like, leadership, you know, and we think um, she, you know, Germany's done so well, like, how, how, what a great, um, you know, what a great, experience they've had there as a result. And, you know, I'm just looking right now at the, um, the deaths per million. Germany has had 245 deaths per million and New Zealand had five. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and I still think Merkel's doing great. No, I mean, probably like, you know, probably actually did like all the things that public health experts would have advised, um, did, you know, manage things very, very well. But, you know, there are other dynamics. And, you know, another thing that, that is a factor is just, um, is just luck. And that's one of the weird things about, you know, these super spreader aspects dynamic of the, of the, of the disease, which is that something like 90% of cases come from, you know, come from 10% of patients. So most people like the median person with COVID doesn't even infect a single other person, even someone like in their own home, if they have it. Um, and yet, and yet you have these moments, these, um, where, you know, one person will infect 60 people. And, you know, part of that is the social dynamics. There's probably some amount of biological part of that too, where like some, some people like sneeze a lot more intensely than other people and that kind of thing. But um, what it means is that the, what would otherwise be sort of muted differences in the trajectory can get exaggerated enormously if these super spreader events happen at the right time. Um, now, I don't think that explains the difference between New Zealand having five people dying per million versus, um, you know, Germany with 245 people dying per million. But, you know, who knows? And then when you think about, you know, the, the analogy to the climate case, you know, I think the for me the biggest lesson about learning from the pandemic is actually about taking the opportunity that the pandemic has given us on climate which is to say we're now in this totally unprecedented moment in terms of government spending and investment and that's not just true in the US where we like that 5 trillion dollar cares act is so much I mean so much bigger than what than the recovery act in 2009 which was like at the time unprecedented 
Um, and we're going to do it. We're probably going to do at least one more and maybe several more COVID stimulus bills. And so is every other country in the world who is now treating their, you know, their spending as it just they're, they're taking a much, much looser approach to government spending than they have in at least a generation. And that may continue. It may be the case that we're entering into like a much more, um, you know, um, where governments are just much more comfortable doing um, direct spending and it's kind of on the, maybe inspired by, by the Chinese model too. Um, or we may snap back to something that feels more like austerity again. I don't know, but I do know that like we have these, this huge softball just sitting right in front of us, which is like, we know we need to spend trillions of dollars all around the world to like do what we can to stabilize the well-being of people. And we have this project that we need to achieve decarbonization, which is incredibly capital intensive, but which we also know will pay off like really, really quickly and produce a lot more human flourishing if we do it well. So like that logic is so obvious to me, like we should be using COVID stimulus money to rebuild the world to decarbonize and make it more resilient. And in fact, there've been papers that have already shown this, that like, you know, in the U S we'd have to only spend like a quarter of the care cares act. If we spent directly on, on climate to totally decarbonize the American economy. Um, and we just need to be, we need to focus and prioritize that project. And they've done that a little bit in Europe. There's I think something like 30% of, of European stimulus spending has been, um, earmarked for climate causes, but it's much, much smaller in the U S and China, which are much, um, much bigger players in the climate space. So that to me is like the biggest lesson is like, we don't get all that many up. I mean, it's, it's a, a kind of a gross adaptation of like the Rahm Emanuel, like don't let a crisis go to waste in it, which is an ugly thing to say in the face of a, you know, pandemic that's killed several million people all around the world. But, um, we don't have the opportunity to really change the way that we live all that often. We sort of have that now. And if we don't do it, if we don't take the opportunity to respond to climate, we don't, I don't really know when we're going to have an opportunity of that scale again. And we're probably only going to be doing it in a defensive, responsive way rather than a sort of proactive way, which is the opportunity we have right now. Okay, one more question before I get to the question that I end every show with, um, and that is about as as uh, the listeners can tell, uh, you have a you have a small child. You have a small child yeah. at home. She's very charming. It's very awesome. Uh, and I also have small kids. I will. Con- uh, I mean, mine are a little older, but I have to say, uh, we talked about how like researching the science like changed your view, uh, or at least focused your view when it came to climate. And I will say that, like, it is what I like. I feel like I've spent. I I had. I think you and I both had kids, like, relatively. Like, you know, my I have cousins that had kids at sixteen, so everything is relatively late to them. But I think certainly, uh, relatively late. I think when people first have kids, and I will say that, like, I I spent most of my life kind of imagining, like, what what what's the world going to be like for my kid? And I've always just been on the presumption that there will be a world for my kid, and. To me, you know, people talk about, yeah, you know, you talk about Greta and like how this next generation of kids are the ones that obviously are, it's a major, major issue for young activists. But I have to say, like, I'm curious for you to be writing about this to be basically, as you talked about, this is what you're going to be writing about the rest of your life. And knowing that you have like a 
kid who's going to have to live in this world and it's going to have to and it, you know is and uh, the the ur- I'm curious how it changes your urgency about it has it changed your urgency about it uh how just emotionally speaking how has it affected uh the way that you cover this now knowing that this is the world that you someone you love as much as anyone can love anything in the world is going to have to live in well I start from you know an understanding that the world has always been full of lots of suffering and probably what I would want Raka to learn growing up, even in the absence of a climate crisis is empathy for those people, especially those people who are living far away from her living in, you know, parts of poor parts of the world um, who are likely to suffer most from climate change. And I think that is ultimately the biggest lesson the sort of biggest that's the most important thing to me is to is that in general but also within my family that we don't dehumanize those who are suffering most and actually take seriously the moral demands that that places on us living in the west um you know, I don't my book is called The Uninhabitable Earth. It's 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 a hyperbolic title. I I don't mean to predict or project that like the planet is going to be literally unlivable for humans, certainly on any time scale that it makes sense for us to worry about or plan for. But I do think that it's quite possible that climate introduces a lot more suffering than we're familiar with or comfortable with today. And um, I think how we respond to that is, you know, it's a test for us as a species, but it's not unovercomable if we choose to you know, respond in the right ways. And that's not just to say that we accelerate the, you know, the paths of decarbonization that we're on now. It's also to say like, okay, if we take seriously that we're not going to stay below two degrees and at two degrees, we know that, you know, um, 150 million people are going to die of air pollution and storms that used to hit once every century are going to hit once a year um, and we could have cities in South Asia and the Middle East that are so hot that you can't walk around in summer without risking heat stroke or death. We also need to start thinking about how we're going to make people who live in those places in the, in those paths, how we're going to make their lives, not just livable, but, you know, full of some amount of opportunity and flourishing and joy. And, I think for a very long time, we have, you know, turned away from suffering elsewhere as a culture, and we need to sort of reverse that. Um, When I think about Raka's life in particular, you know, it's a sort of a tragic indictment of the shape of the world as a whole, that I expect that while her life will be defined in many ways by climate change... I don't think she's going to be like, you know, fleeing New York in like a refugee flotilla because of waters or, you know, sprinting away from wildfires as they tear through lower Manhattan or whatever. Like that's just, it's not going to happen. Um, You know, our politics and our economy and our culture are going to be shaped by climate change. And, you know, it's, it's not like New York is impenetrable. Like we did have Sandy and we're going to have more of those storms. And of course, as an economic center, we're connected to the, the, everything that goes on everywhere else in the world. But I also think, um, 
you know, like I said, this is a, it's kind of tragic that I am saying this, but I think that we respond to a lot of this um, through normalization. And I think that a generation from now, probably the world is going to be full of much more disaster than we see today. And depending on how we calibrate our response, much more suffering. But I actually don't really expect that Raka's life is going to be scarred emotionally in the way that you and I might expect it to be. (laughs) Because over the course of those decades, we will learn that like, as Californians have learned living with fire, like they're, they're now so like they're, they're so calloused to the wildfires that, you know, you can have this unbelievably historic wildfire season in 2018. And then we have a wildfire season two years later, 2020, that's more than twice as bad. And, it doesn't, it's not like it's like, oh, we've doubled the amount of wildfire suffering in California, even though we right. have. Right, right. Um, but we figured out, we sort of like emotionally recalibrated in a way that is an indictment of us, a moral indictment of us, because we want to keep our antenna tuned to suffering. But it also means that um, I think that when we're imagining the lives of people alive 30 years from now, we have to imagine that they're going to mostly resemble our own. It's just that they will, it will be it will seem weird to us or maybe not if we're still alive. Um, it'll seem weird to us that like given the state of the world and the state of the climate, then that they would be able to normalize in those ways. Um, and that's one reason why I think it's really important to do the work that I've done, which is to talk about the medium term and distant future, because if you're only calibrating your emotional response to say the wildfire threat or hurricanes, in thinking about what's likely to happen over the next five years, you're never going to be all that surprised by what happens and not never going to be all that shocked into action. But if you're thinking about, you know, the 30 or 50 year timeline, then you think, oh my God, the world is going to be really fucking different if we don't move mm. fast, which means we should move fast. It's a way of motivating present tense, present tense action to think a little further in the future. Now, I'm, you know, I could be wrong on both fronts. Like it could be the case that you know, civilization collapses over the next few decades. Like, I think that's very unlikely, but there are people who are very serious scientists and social scientists who think that it's on the table. Um, And I could also be wrong in the other direction. And it could be the case that, you know, carbon capture or something becomes so cheap and scalable that we don't even have to stop burning fossil fuel anytime soon. Again, I think that's quite unlikely, but um, the whole, we're entering into a world of total uncertainty, but, you know, big picture what that really means is that many things that we thought were reliable and safe and foundational are also up in the air. And, you know, I, um, I always like to sort of orient my basic perspective by, by thinking, you know, we're at 1.1, 1.2 degrees of warming right now. And that doesn't sound like very much, but it means we're already outside the window of temperatures that have enclosed literally the entire history of human civilization, which means that everything we have ever known as a species took place because of and on the basis of climate conditions we've already left behind. And some of the civilization we've brought with us to this effective new planet, this new world, some of that civilization will survive, but some of it will have to reform and renovate. And a lot of it we're going to have to discard. The question of like how fully we can, you know, we can continue living the way, mostly the way that we do, it's really an open question. And my guess is that, you know, we end, we land somewhere in the middle of that sort of fan of possibilities. Um, but it's also, you know, it's conceivably possible that things get 
get much worse or much better. And, you know, from a sort of looking at the fate of the planet from outer space kind of perspective, I think what that really means is we just have to, um, you know, learn as the pandemic taught us too, just how fragile everything that we we took to be permanent really is and do what we can to stabilize and secure it for our children and everybody who comes after them. Okay, last question. This is a question I ask everyone. Uh, you are not the first uh, best-selling author that we've had uh, on this podcast, though you're the only one that's written one book and then that one just... Oh, no, Linda Holmes. Linda Holmes has written one book and she uh, heard it at a bestseller, though her book has not yet been given, to, like referred to by... AOC and, yeah. and, and so on. Uh, though, uh, though our last book was about Beverly Hills 90210, and I think that she would like that book. Though she may be too young. She's probably too young for 90210. Well, the, anyway, they probably the point did a is, reboot, I would guess. No, yeah, yeah, sure. she would know that one. Uh, she'd be like, oh, oh, that's right. That's that old dude from the Sharknado story. He was, <laughs> he was in that. Uh, but I'm I, this. This is something I always like to ask authors because uh, I'm. This is I'm about a couple months away from this on on my book, uh, which is the unboxing. What it felt when the, the you know this thing that you'd worked on for so long and put so much into when they sent them to you and you opened up the box for the first time and there was this thing that you held in your hand the one book uh, that you've written so far uh, what was that experience like where were you do you remember the circumstances of it no. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! Well, I'm glad this is something that you'll never leave behind. You know, honestly, a moment that every author cares about so much. In the, you know, I, I I wrote the book in such a rush, and I work, I you know, because I work in magazines and I, I have worked in book publishing, it just felt much more like local to me as an achievement than I think it does to a lot of writers. Um, and I also just have a kind of a a personal temperamental, like from my wasp dad, like inclination to like sort of always just try to act like you've been there before right. um, give the ball to the ref like you've like you've got the touchdown before yeah which it. i've learned actually in the aftermath of all this is a really unhealthy way of going through <laughs> something that you're probably not like i you know the 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 experience that you're describing that i had that or the, the experience i had that was closest to the one that you're describing is actually when i got a copy of the British paperback edition because it had all these quotes on the cover <laughs> and on the back. And they weren't the quotes of the people that I had emailed asking to blurb my book as a favor. <laughs> right, right, they right, were the quotes right. of people who like didn't know me right. and thought the book was important to like reckon with. And most of them like said really nice things. And that actually to me was more and like, I'd sort of like in the flurry of the publication, I'd sort of like missed a lot of those pieces. So like I hadn't, you know, and I was just like seeing like, oh, it says like, uh, it says on the cover, like uh, an epic defining book, The Guardian. And it's like, well, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, I love that paper now. What a great, I've always loved The Guardian. What a great paper. Love it. Love um, it. And, so, and I think that like seeing it, seeing it received in the world was much more sort of surprising yeah. and meaningful to me than getting it out in the world. But I think that was probably because I was, um, you know, like I didn't have the, uh, I didn't have the right emotional relationship to the book when it first came out. I like, I, my inclination was to be embarrassed by any attention um, rather than live in it a little bit. And, you know, so to the extent that other, like, you know, I don't know. So, so basically, you know, you're 
Yeah, I, you know, I'm gonna totally when 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 How Lucky comes out, if it gets any good noses at all, I'm totally just gonna hand the ball right to back to the ref. <laughs> just gonna give the ball right back to the ref and be like, yeah, you know what? I've scored a touchdown before. Though I haven't, I totally have. But isn't that? I mean, really, isn't it such a fucked up emotional like system that we have that when 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 we go any of that any of us feel this, then when we're going through something truly exceptional, we think it's like the coolest thing to do to perform normalcy in that oh, moment. Yeah. 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 yeah, of course. And, 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 and frankly, I find people that don't do that. I kind of sneer at him. I'm like, yeah, oh, totally. Please, please. Come on. That's not, that's not the way, but like, you're right. Like, I think it probably would be more healthy to be like, Hey, this is kind of what I was working for. Yeah. <laughs> this is kind of what I wanted to happen. But uh, I don't know. I, of course, again, right now we're still all in the middle of pandemic and all in our homes all the time. Right now, everything just seems wonderful. That's not this. So maybe yeah. I'm maybe I'm imagining that scenario in a larger thing. Well, David, by all means, uh, say so you and I have been working together for uh, quite a few years now, actually, and um, and is I feel like I've never really got to really just tell you how much the not only the, the, the I was impressed by the book, but just just proud, I was just proud to know you with, with the work, and frankly, with the stuff that you've been doing with Co. I honestly feel like that particularly during the really dark time, not that like. Again, talk about normalizing things. The, the the dark time is now, but it doesn't feel like the really dark time. The really dark time feels like March and April, uh, which is again weird because it's the opposite of what we should be thinking. But it speaks to how we normalizing. But that moment where like there was all fog, I felt like your stuff was clarifying and mercifully sane in a world where it is difficult to find. So you know, thank you. Oh man, thanks for saying so, and thanks for having me. And also, I hope this I hope this conversation wasn't too too heavy. <laughs> No, please. Again, our last podcast was about nine hundred two one zero, but the one before that was actually about like like the torture of dogs. So don't worry, don't worry. Right. There's been uh, uh, it's it's all been good. Well, David, honestly, have a great holiday season. Uh, best to you and yours. Uh, and um, we'll. Uh, I look forward to. Uh, uh, I'm gonna keep talking to you. I'm not gonna record it anymore, but I'm gonna keep talking to you on a regular basis. But uh, uh, honestly, th- thanks for all the work you're doing. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks for chatting with me. Oh, my pleasure. I hope we do it again. Yeah, so the book is The Uninhabitable Earth. I also like the fact, I never realized there were British editions of book. I assume they just add the letter U into like just all the words. It's just what they do. I don't know what they do. Uh, but anyway, the book is The Uninhabitable Earth. Uh, read it, uh, give it to your, your someone you love this holiday season. Uh, be safe, everyone. This is the last show of 2020. So I will be back in 2021 when everything is better. Uh, be safe, everyone.